This is Circulating Ideas, episode number 240. My name is Steve Thomas, and my guests today are the editors of Hopeful Visions, Practical Actions, Cultural Humility in Library Work, Sarah Kostelecki, Lori Townsend, and David Hurley. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com support. And don't forget to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter at circideas.substack.com. It's free. Sarah, Lori, and David, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Before we get into the book, can you tell listeners what initially attracted you to the library profession? I kind of fell into the profession. As an undergrad, I did a semester abroad, and it's radio, so you can't see my air quotes, on the Navajo Nation, and fell in love with it there and decided to stay there. And really the only job in a 500-mile radius that I was qualified for was the audiovisual technician at Navajo Community College Library, which is where I've been doing my semester abroad. I started working in the library there, and that actually wasn't something that I was particularly excited about doing, but once I started it, I really loved it. Then I moved to Seattle a little while later and ended up going to the library school up there, and the rest is history. Hi, this is Lori. I started working at the University of New Mexico libraries when I was a student. And I worked in the Center for Southwest Research, which is our special collections library. I'd always found libraries to be comfortable places. I was raised in a family of readers, and it felt good to work there. They had a couple of Native faculty librarians who, when I actually came back to work at UNM as a librarian, were both still working there. I remember seeing them walking around, doing their business, looking fancy and professional. And I thought that that was something maybe I could do. I liked the work and I liked the people. And so that's why I became a librarian. This is Sarah. And also like Lori, I came from a family of readers. My mom is an elementary school teacher. I actually had my first job when I was 14 in our tribal library. But when I went to college, I did think about that as a career. I don't really know why, but I just didn't really think about it, but I worked as a student employee and the museum libraries was a special library on campus. And I had a really great supervisor and she said, well, you should think about going to library school. This was my freshman year as an undergrad. And I said, what's library school? I had no idea. But she really encouraged me. And I had subsequent supervisors who also encouraged me. My next supervisor, she was a native woman and she was also part of what became the Knowledge River program at the University of Arizona to recruit underrepresented librarians to the field. And she encouraged me to apply for that. And I applied for it and started on this career, which I didn't know I could do. So that's how I got started. Yeah. And this is a transition to the book pretty well. I think that for Lori and Sarah, you all saw people who were like you in the library. And that's part of what helps with getting the culture right for that kind of thing. Like if you come in and it's all people who look different than you, act different than you, or not anything like you, that's not going to make you feel welcome. The book that you guys edited together is called Hopeful Visions, Practical Actions, Cultural Humility in Library Work. And to get us all on the same page, can you define cultural humility first for listeners? That's a good question, because we have a definition that is long and complicated, and I'm not sure that we want to go into that kind of definition in this context, but I'll say we think of cultural humility as an approach to being in the world that 
hopefully can help reduce harm, make change, and make improvements in library services. And this could be in the broader world as well, but within the library context, to really try to improve services. The problem that we see cultural mobility as a response to, if we want to problematize things, is having a profession that is very different demographics than the population at large, populations that we serve, and also for the people who work in the library, but don't match that. Sometimes just a lot of assumptions, a lot of structural issues, a lot of things are intentionally or unintentionally designed to reinforce and recreate the structures that serve the populations that are overrepresented in particularly library administration and libraries in general. And how do we correct for that? I can add a little bit to our definition in that if we think about cultural humility broadly, I think one of the conclusions that we came to was that it's an approach to making change while reducing harm. And I think that it's interesting because we came to that conclusion when we were writing an earlier piece and we were at the time working on our book. And one of our book chapter authors, they also came to that similar conclusion. They termed cultural humility a theory of change. And that was a chapter written by Nikolai Klein and Jorge Lopez McKnight. I think that there are a lot of things that come into cultural humility that help facilitate it as a theory of change. But I think we like to see it in that active sense of us making change with each other and not harming each other while pursuing that change. As you said, it's really complicated. For people who want the full definition, that's what the book is about. Read the entire book. That's how you get the full definition of cultural humility. But I like the fact that it comes up over and over again, that it's about self-reflection. You come to it yourself and then it sits better with you, I think. Yeah, or it has that impact. Like I'm reflecting on the situation. I kind of talked to this person. Something happened. Maybe I said something or maybe I kind of read something differently. And yeah, reading and things are good too, but it also in that interaction and reflection is where you realize, hmm, I need to think about that. <laughs> you can think about it even if it is put on you. This is one of the chapters, Jared Irwin's chapter, where he came to cultural humility because he was tasked with including cultural humility in a grandwriting workshop that he was developing. So that's really maybe a prime example of it just sort of being put on you and you have to deal with it. And I think what makes that chapter really interesting is that he didn't sprinkle cultural humility over the existing workshop, which I think does happen a lot when things are put on you. Like, okay, here's a box I have to check, but actually approached it from a, how will knowing about cultural humility help people make stronger grant applications? And in, in his chapter, he answers that question. And it, I think it's a very powerful chapter in that it develops not only into better grant application, but into better grant projects. So it was just really nice and seeing it that way as not something where he necessarily felt a burning need to approach this grant writing workshop uh, with cultural humility, but being tasked with that by coming in with the right attitude. And I think cultural humility audit is about your attitude as well. So coming in with that attitude and being able to do something really meaningful. That was one of the nice things for us, in reading the chapters that have become part of the book, it's been really exciting to encounter these sorts of things. I think that checklist mindset can be what triggers in the introduction. You all talk about some of the mental practices that you can do. And one of the ones don't be defensive. But if you're just told to just do this, just 
uh, hire more people of color. That's what we're doing now. I think if you understand, take a step back and look at the purpose. Like we're not just hiring more people of color or people from marginalized communities because we want to see them around. <laughs> the purpose is not just to have them there. It's because them being there makes the services that we offer. We serve the community better that way. So it's not just, again, checking off a box of, yep, okay, now I have 20% of Black people and I have 1%. There's a purpose behind doing this and understanding that purpose is really important. And then the other two key mental practices to keep in mind of the don't be defensive and recognize other people's perspectives and that self-reflection that we mentioned earlier. To me, the thing that came to mind is that it's a mindset. It's not just checking boxes that you got to change the way you're thinking, really. I think we ideally think of cultural humility as a mindset and primarily as a way of being in the world, which I think David referred to. It's a practice as much as anything else. It's not something that you reflect on and then go, hmm, that was a good reflection. <laughs> you know, you really want to act and take action in the world. I think cultural humility is a way of facilitating action with others so that when we accomplish big things, we're usually accomplishing them with others. So that self-reflection piece is really key and then taking it to the next step where you're putting it into practice. Sorry, I think in one of the presentations we did on cultural humility, you had reflect, but not too long. That's not the main purpose here is to think about yourself. I definitely think that we think of cultural humility in organizational or institutional context. And that is a question that comes up. Is it moving us past webinars or trainings and into real change that institutions can make? Part of it is like it's going to take time. It's not, unfortunately, like the checklist and say, okay, great, we're done. Like that's easy, right? But it's also not going to make actual long-lasting change. Also, that's something we always think about too in, in these chapters as well is we're all going to make mistakes. We do make mistakes doing this. We're humans, right? We're trying to be better, but we kind of mess up too. And that's part of the process. And it's okay to do that. And it's expected and it shouldn't be surprising because we're all going to do that. It's hard. It's kind of like the don't be defensive, right? That's really difficult to do. We recognize that that's hard. I think we haven't talked much about this specifically, but something I've been thinking about in relation to culture humility is sort of mindfulness practices, just noticing in your body or what are the thoughts I'm having, but not getting too deep in them, but just noticing, oh, I had this reaction. I think there's a lot of similarities in that kind of practice. Yeah. Time and attention. Several times the concept of the check boxes has come up. And I think we really want Culture humility to be on the other end of the continuum from checkboxes is the opposite approach, where it's recognizing that this isn't easy. This takes time and attention, and it is not something that you schedule for Tuesday afternoon. It is something that has to be a practice, a way of being. I think that as far as the mindfulness techniques are really relevant to what we're trying to do too. I like the word expectation that Sarah had in there too. So, like, if you work here, that's an expectation of you. It's like. You also can't yell at people. That's an expectation. Thinking of these things is part of the job. I think a lot of times when institutions do this, it's like, okay, let's put together the diversity team. And then it's, where's all the people of color? Put them on the diversity team. It's like, well, number one, don't make them solve the problem. <laughs> They're not causing the problem. I mean, talk to them, get input from the people who are being affected, obviously, but you can't just put the burden on them even more of, okay, we caused this problem. Now tell us how to solve it, please. So that happens so many times. Yes, that expert, right? Now I have to educate people. Now I have to do this work in addition to my other work. And it doesn't mean we don't want to 
make things better, but it's also like, yeah, that experience is very kind of like, and I just have to point out, even just now, as we're talking about this, Steve, you say, you know, we created the problem, you solve it, right? Which assumes a, I'm guessing, white library administration, which isn't a bad assumption, right? That is a known thing. But again, that sort of language around what is normal for the library versus what it could be. It's just kind of interesting. I think, I think that highlights the sort of structures that we have in the library, we've got certain norms and certain expectations in our profession. And that's part of what we need to reflect on and move on from. I was going to bring up another chapter by Anan Sorrell, and I'm sure they were both thinking of this as well when you were talking about institutional culture, because she wrote about using cultural humility at Dene College. It is over 90% Navajo. And so it's a pretty apparently homogeneous population. And yet she finds culture humility very useful because even within that population, there's a great deal of diversity. And also what I found really inspiring about that chapter was the way the institution was very clear, very transparent about their values, laid out values that people regularly use in doing their work with one another. And they're based in Denek culture. And I think that that chapter really gives us a unique lens on what an organization might be able to do with laying out those kinds of values. I'm not sure how that would translate, honestly, to a Western institution. I think David and Sarah and I have talked about that. But I do think that it's inspiring and thought-provoking to read about her perspective on using cultural humility in that context. And it does tell us a little bit about what we can think about when trying to shift our institutional cultures away from hierarchy and the, all of the things that we're used to dealing with and trying to think about cultural humility and how we use it in our organizations. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect that you all talk about in the book and in a couple of chapters that just because, oh, well, that's a bunch of Native people, so they're all the same. No, female Native people have different experiences than male, have different than trans, have different than people who like science fiction. People are people. So there are lots of overlap between people because you have shared experiences. But just because you're one thing doesn't mean you're the same as everybody else. Venn diagrams, that's a great way to show things. Which comes back to the text thing, right? That our identities aren't contained by checkboxes. Maybe Venn diagrams is the answer. I love it. Miss <laughs> that? Darn. Uh, Venn diagrams are always the answer. Well, and so Rhiannon in her chapters, Lori and I recently presented with her and Lorraine Roy about their chapters as well at the Association for Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums Conference in October of last year. She talked about, yeah, the diversity within that population. She's Dene as well, but then also like, this is why it also works within a seemingly <laughs> homogenous population because like you said, Steve, Rhiannon has a different experience. She's gone to school. She left her community she came back to her community and then how was she perceived as a different experience that she shares you know than maybe people who stayed there and it's funny too because people were just like assuming like when are you gonna leave like she's not really invested in staying there and she's like no i want to be here this is important to me and that they don't have um, a specific word for humility in the Diné language navajo language but these guiding principles that the college has express humility so that was really interesting, too, that that's still part of the culture, even though it's not specifically that phrasing, but those elements of it are embedded in it. And how do they 
work to support them in their work in this non-Western environment of the college, but also like bringing that into their work. So yeah, it's a really great chapter and she's really great to share her story. Well, we've already gotten pretty deep into the book, but how did you all get together to edit this book? What got you interested in the topic in the first place and then got you to the point of a book? So how we got into cultural humility was actually from outside librarianship. I was working with the board of a local organization that sort of was recognizing that it was majority white and majority wealthy membership, even though its mission was statewide and its mission was to serve all of New Mexico. So the question was, there's clearly something going on here that's making our organization skew this way. And I think the president of the board or somebody on the board said, well, I guess we should do a diversity workshop. And the one person of color who was on the board said, oh no, please don't make me sit through another diversity workshop. That kind of resonated for me also, but I think in a different way, right? I'm a white man and I have felt like, oh, how do another diversity workshop? But hearing it from her in the context of an organization trying to solve a problem, it was kind of interesting. And I think many of the people on the board were kind of taken back by her reaction and said, well, what should we do instead? And she said, well, maybe we can do something with cultural humility. And that was the first time I heard the word. And my role on the board actually was to do professional development events for them. And so my job became finding out about cultural humility. That was right when I was starting at UNM. And so I wasn't part of that organization's cultural humility program, but in doing the research and reading and finding somebody who could facilitate for them, it seems to me that cultural humility also could really make a lot of sense for libraries. I brought that to Sarah and to Lori, who also agreed, and we began looking to see what libraries were doing and couldn't find much. This was in, I think, 2015. And so we started working on it ourselves. We published an article, we presented it on a couple of places, and then we began hearing about it more and discovered other people who had already been working with it too. And we were interested in how else are people conceiving of cultural humility? How else are people using cultural humility in library work? And that was really the impetus for the book. And for us, it was very successful. I mean, we got a really wide range of perspectives and people doing different sorts of projects and some people who never used the word cultural humility, but were embodying it in the work that they were doing. And that was a great learning experience for us and hopefully for the readers too. Yeah, just to build on what David said, the chapters are really, again, since so much of it is an internal process of the culture of humility practice, it's your reflection, but also just thinking about norms and power structures and things that are part of an interaction. But that's what's great about the chapters is writing down their thoughts and their own self-reflection process helps all of us to see how they're practicing it, how they're enacting it, what their thoughts were, how they got to those then resulting actions, right? We are really excited to share these with readers because there's some great work being done. And yeah, maybe the contributors didn't think about it as cultural humility necessarily, but that's what they've been doing. And so, yeah, we're really excited to share. We really thank our contributors because it is difficult and it's very vulnerable to write stories like that. And also, again, to like share mistakes that you've made or things that you experience that even if it's a successful experience, but it can be a vulnerable place to write those things. So yeah, we're really thankful to our authors for contributing and writing in these honest ways. We thank them for their generosity and sharing these stories with us and the readers because it can be difficult. It's not an easy thing to do. 
How did you decide how you wanted to put the book together, like how you wanted to structure the book? We thought about trying to make it a more formally organized book. I know some folks take that approach when it comes to soliciting different authors for a book. But what we really wanted was to recruit a diversity of voices from all across librarianship and hear those stories. And so we didn't want to put any real limiters on it other than it be about cultural humility. We tried to distribute the call as widely as we could. And many of the authors we actually approached directly because we knew of work that they were doing. A lot of the folks that ended up writing chapters were people who we had seen present or had read their work. We just wanted to make sure that we could hear from a lot of different people about cultural humility. So I think we moved away then from having a book that was structured like defining cultural humility, cultural humility in academic libraries, cultural humility in public libraries, you know, that kind of structure, which would be useful. But I think that we really love the flow of the book through all of these different topics. And we love thinking about the themes and grouping the chapters together after the fact based on what we saw rise up and the commonalities in the chapters. Yes, that's what we wanted to do. And we were happy to get a range of, of contributors in different libraries because we also recognize that we are an academic library. So this is something that we have the luxury, the ability to spend time on and everybody does not have that even if they are doing this work and they want to contribute. So that's why, like Lori said, some folks we saw present at conferences and even that, of course, is another you know, element to being able to do a presentation, go to a conference. Now, even if they're virtual, you still sometimes have the conference fee and things. But that's why we were recognizing that we were hoping people would be able to contribute what they could about their work. So that's why we did want to make it broad so we could get that range of experiences. I think what the chapters do really well is document the practice, the choices they've made to enact this in different ways in their profession. I think the themes, they're not going to be like exactly aligned perfectly. But when we look at the chapters, we see that there are a range of ways that people are making cultural humility happen in their professional lives. All of that is a personal endeavor for them. It's unique to what they want and what they value and the work that they do. And so I think that what is wonderful about the book is that it is those different contexts, but it's the choice of all of them to make something happen. One of the things that we haven't really talked about much that gets hit a couple of times is power differentials. I think that with cultural humility, it can be easy to focus on the interpersonal relations part of it. But a founding principle from the originators of the theory is about power and working on mitigating power differentials, recognizing them reflecting on them, but also, again, making change and trying to impact those structural inequities. I think that the first part of that is being able to recognize, and that does take a lot of self-reflection, because if you're in a position where you have some privilege and some power, it can be difficult to actually notice that. And difficult in a real way. We're not minimizing that difficulty for folks. But it's also important that we recognize that and then we move to change it. And cultural humility has some interesting thoughts about dynamics between people and power differentials. We wrote about that in the special report. 
And you can see that throughout the chapters when people talk about things like this wonderful chapter by Michael Mungan about his development of a queer trans people of color canon for films. One of the things that he talks about is how much support he got from his library, his institution, how he got support from colleagues and supervisors. They gave him time to work on this. He did his own work. He got himself a grant. This was something that he was the person doing all of this work. But at any step in that process, he could have been hindered. And it was really important that the institution support him. Those are people in more powerful positions. And they were willing to lend him that support. And then he created this wonderful resource. His chapter is just wonderful because he reflects on just his whole experience with libraries and the way he thinks about cultural humility in his work other than this. But I think that those power differentials are real in organizations that we each have to reckon with the power that we hold. And we have to be willing to challenge the power that others might be using in ways that we find objectionable or that we think are inequitable. Right. I also want to mention Carrie Valdez's chapter. I think she, to paraphrase, has just because something's not a problem for you doesn't mean it's not a problem. I think that really gets at the problem of power differential, because not all power differentials are inherently bad, right? One side of the circulation desk has more power over the transaction than the other side of the circulation desk. That's just the way it is. Well, it's funny. Whenever I say just the way it is, I think, huh, there's a structure that needs examining. But that seems like it's an appropriate power differential. But that power differential, if you're in the position of more power, may make it impossible or much more difficult for you to see how policies are having unintentional negative consequences. So you're seeing from your perspective what the policy is intending to do and what it does do. And you can say, oh, no, no, that's not our intention. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And that's where I think the tie-in also with critical race theory comes in, is recognizing these structures that are built have certain expectations, values, and norms built into them. And if we don't analyze those, we won't understand the impact that they're having on people who are coming from a different set of, a different normal. Every time I have people have to talk about a book like this that's got you know, however many, you know, 12 chapters. And it's like, there's no way you can even list them, much less get into them. And every chapter deserves its own episode of the podcast. The real solution, of course, listeners, is to go buy the book and read the chapters. As one of our chapters says, the sweet potato doesn't tell how sweet it is. And there's so many good adages in there that are helpful for thinking about culture, humility, and just your own actions. So we're really happy to have Dr. Roy and Lisa contribute that. And we were happy to have it first because it kind of sets the tone for the rest. Not that you can't read out of order, but that's really great. Also, don't skip that one. But don't skip any other ones. <laughs> yeah, read all of them. You can skip around, but there's a reason they put them in that order. But eventually get around to all of them. Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> Again, the book is uh, Hopeful Visions, Practical Actions, Cultural Humility in Library Work. Sarah and Lori and David, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the book. Thanks so much for having us, Steve. Yes, thanks, Steve. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guests, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. 
You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas.